you know, we all have things that we right. where we think I'm not I can and, I, and I've just had a beautiful experience of that thing and 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 I that should be enough that should be enough and it's not and I'm going to have more and hmm. I think I read one where one place that you if you eat achilagasa if you eat when you're stuffed you don't even say a bracha it's not achilag- is that right yeah you don't say a bracha it's mamash not eating it's something else you know I remember having painful conversations with a member of my community about enoughness in the realm of um, his house hmm. like you know because that there's a constant drive to ha- to think that you're not living in a big enough house right the Joneses the, the Joneses the three car right. garage right. so but what would happen if, if you bought a house and it was like it was enough basically I mean like it mm. wasn't big it was right. Sanua it right. was nice it was right. you'd been there for a long time and right. it was like enough right so like you know what's enough you know, there's a there's a voice in American society, I would imagine, which says you can never be too rich or too thin. Right. And that voice is a voice we have to fight against because that's a voice which in, it ultimately destroys the possibility of real generosity and real gratitude. Because if you're right that, that the experience of the abundance of life is a spiritual quality that's divorced from, it's not connected to how much you have, it's a different question, mm. then you could rejoice in what you have. You could really rejoice in what you have. That was my chavruta, my dear friend and study partner, Rabbi Joel Levy, in conversation with me about the concept of histapkut, satiation, or equanimity, or perhaps just enoughness, as developed by Rabbi Moshe Teitelbaum, also known as the Yismach Moshe. Teitelbaum makes a rather outlandish claim, namely, that righteous people who manage to achieve this quality nourish the entire world. In a world in which more than we can handle is still not enough, in a world in which supreme achievement leaves us with a gnawing sense of dissatisfaction, which is to say, in our world, what would it mean to say, no, that's good enough, I'm good. Our text for the day is from The Happiness Lab a podcast hosted by Lori Santos. In an episode entitled The Silver Lining, she examines the way in which we fall prey to reference points, comparing ourselves to other people in a way that yields profound impact on our happiness. She begins with the story of 2012 Olympic silver medalist Michaela Maroney. She stands on the podium with the medal placed around her neck and flowers in her hands and the crowd cheering. And then it happens. The face. For just a second, in front of thousands of spectators and millions of TV viewers around the world, Michaela's mouth grimaces, contorting sharply to the left. It's a look that's somewhere between annoyance and downright contempt. Tom Gilovich of Cornell University conducted a wide study, which was followed by others, on the dissatisfaction of silver medalists as revealed by their facial expressions. He explains the power of the reference point. Does this mean that the silver medalists who's so close to the gold they can almost taste it think of their quite significant achievement not as achievement but as a failure to to win the gold, the failure to be the person who can be on the weedy box uh, the following year? Whereas the bronze medalist, they might also, some of them, especially if they were expecting to win, might imagine, oh, if I'd done a little better, I could get the gold medal. But the gold medal is two slots away. One slot away in the opposite direction is not getting a medal at all. And so 
psychologically, that's a more tempting alternative to reality to construct, and therefore they have a sense of relief that, well, at least I, at least I got a medal. People don't react to the stimuli they confront. They react to the meaning that they attach to those stimuli. Second place is great, except if you've assigned it the meaning of it not being the gold medal. The grip of the reference point is relentless. Research shows how profoundly it affects our happiness and decision-making in all areas of life, professional accomplishment, financial well-being, and of course, social happiness. And this is the most insidious part of our reference point bias. We don't just pick arbitrary reference points. We often pick the most extreme reference point out there, the person that's doing the very, very, very best in whatever trait we're thinking of. That's where our minds go. And our bias to seek out these extreme alternatives might be getting more problematic today, especially with so many upward comparisons on social media to make us envious. It's a very rare person that posts a picture of themselves kind of lonely and miserable. So you get a bias sample from being on any kind of social media. So it's hard to imagine how that couldn't accentuate this tendency. But Santos turns to another Olympic silver medalist, figure stater Michelle Kwan, as a model for how things can be otherwise. Intuitively, Kwan did many of the things that research has shown to be effective in releasing the gnawing grip of the reference point. She exercises what is termed negative visualization, thinking about how much worse things could be, allowing her, like the bronze medalist, to savor what she has. She also learned from her older sister, Karen, who competed against her in the national championships and lost, but was genuinely able to relish her sister's success. But most significantly, she immerses herself in the process, including the hard work of practice, and simply enjoys it. It's overwhelming. It is completely overwhelming. You're so proud um, to represent the United States. And then you're at the Olympic arena where you you skate over the Olympic rings where it's painted on under the ice. And uh, I remember actually crying when I skated over the Olympic rings and I was so overwhelmed that I my I had tears rolling down my face and then my coach actually pulled me aside it's like you need to wake up snap out of it wake up you're here you're at the Olympics you have a job to do I want to skate my best before think about medals think, thinking about anything I want to do my very own best and have no regrets it really was an awakening of it's not about the results it's about the journey Kwan's ability to enjoy what she's doing in the purest sense is unarming. When you look back, you're like, would a gold medal make me happier? When I look back, it's not the medals themselves. It's, it's the moments. It's the hearing the applause and hearing, you know, the crowd and hearing the ice when I skated over it. It's so beautiful. I don't know, just hearing the roar of the audience and having that love. This is why I do what I do. I want to welcome to Padrash Rabbi Yoshi Zweibach. Yoshi, uh, I'll tell I'll tell our listeners about Yoshi's in my friendship in a second. But first, let's uh, let's establish your credentials, Yosh. Uh, Yosh was born in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and more importantly, raised in Omaha. Nebraska, 
Uh, he graduated from Princeton in 1991 and was ordained as a rabbi from the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. He served as rabbi at Congregation Beth Am in Los Altos Hills, and he is the senior rabbi at Stephen S. Wise in Los Angeles. Yoshi, uh, it is a pleasure to welcome you to Padrash. Thank you, Rabbi Dr. Leon Dow. Most importantly, of all the titles that I could apply to you, the most important one for me is friend. Oh, gosh. Okay, so so now let's say something about that before we talk podcast. Yosh and I go back to 1987, when even before classes had begun, we met in the Delaware River Gap, I think that's what it's called. And we were both on outdoor action trips, and we didn't have the privilege or perhaps the, the good destiny of being on the same trip, because then we might not have been friends. But we did cross paths. <laughs> because we had rubbed each other the long, wrong way back then. But well, no, 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 no. One of us rubbed the other the wrong way. You did not rub me the wrong way. I thought you were delightful, uh, but so, apparently uh, I was obnoxious. So uh, so anyway, we had one night together, our paths crossed. And then fortunately for us, uh, after a pause, we recrossed paths and established a friendship that has spanned, I hate to say it now, but uh, upwards of three decades and with children and Israel and the United States. So it is a pleasure, a true pleasure, personal and professional to have you here, Yosh. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. I want to start by asking you and inviting you listened uh, to the Happiness Labs uh, episode, The Silver Lining. And I want to invite you to offer uh, what, whatever initial reactions and thoughts you had upon listening to the podcast. First of all, thank you so much for introducing me to the that podcast. I'd heard of it before, but I'd never listened to an episode. So I really appreciated that. And I'm, I'm definitely going to check out more of that program. It was so compelling and so much so that I then went and I, I actually had to see the face of Michaela Maroney. I yes, wanted to see that too. that yeah. face and the yeah. meme. Yeah. And and I don't remember, I, I, I didn't remember it, you know, when, when they... Um, described it and they interviewed her. I didn't remember that moment. The Michelle Kwan moments, I remembered better um, for whatever reason. But then when I went back and saw that face, it really was absolutely perfect. And then I saw online, there's a, a beautiful picture of, of her and President Obama in the Oval Office, both making that face. It became you know a thing. But that whole concept of reference point was really helpful. Um, you know, What am I looking at it from? And so for the bronze medalist, the reference point being so different from the silver medalist. And it was an opportunity to reflect moments in my own life when, when I was like, oh, you know, I was so close to whatever it was um, without really thinking about just how satisfied I should have been with, with, what, I, with what I had. Hmm. When I was thinking, I mean, I've known since uh, I started Padrash that you're going to have to be a guest. And, and when I was trying to figure out what episode four I thought of this episode, and I'll tell you why. Um, not because of your own accomplishments, but because I thought, gosh, you are a congregational rabbi in Los Angeles, uh, and surely you must have to deal with a tremendous challenging reality in which people are surrounded by other people who are enormously successful, uh, and the way in which they gauge their own success and their own happiness uh, is inextricably bound with what the person right next to them or down the street is doing. I appreciate that. And, you know, one of the things about 
Hollywood and I've been in Los Angeles now for about 10 years uh, all together. And I'm still very Midwestern in my approach to celebrity. You know, like I freak out, I get super excited. Actually, just in the grocery store the other day, I saw an actor um, whose work I'd, I'd admired and I was like, he's wearing a mask and he's like in the produce aisle. I just came over and I just said, I, I love your work. Thank you so much. I think that the challenge of, of that uh, industry is that so much of it really is objective. It's like, okay, you can look at the box office numbers and you know, you know, this was uh, a success and this was a failure. And you right. can look at the Rotten Tomatoes or, you know, critical right. uh, reviews and you can say, this is a success, this is a failure. And in so many other industries, yes, there still is the bottom line. You know, there still is that. But, you know, I'm thinking of my dad, who was a, you know, general surgeon. And, and it wasn't like there was at the end of the year, some sort of article in Variety that where he could rank himself vis-a-vis -vis all the other folks. He had his patients who would come to him and tell him how much they meant to him. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and so it, it's a very different kind of um, metric, I think. Right. Um, and I was just talking to a couple of colleagues about a program that we're running um, called Book of Life, and we're trying to figure out how do we get more people to come to our classes and come to the program, and what if we started a, a vodcast or something like that? And then you start thinking about, okay, how many clicks am I going to get? How many hits am I going to get? And right. I realized, like, oh, I don't want to be, I don't want to be in that. I want to know that, like, oh, it was just a really satisfying experience to have this conversation and mm. to to teach this class. And if ten people came, fantastic. You know, it'd be a lie to say that I don't care at all how many right. people show up to these things. But I just know that if I start measuring my work in that way, I am gonna be you know, that silver medalist who's like, oh, so close to gold. I'll push a little bit further on that and ask clearly, you will make decisions and say, okay, well, those were that was a great class that had 10 people, but maybe I need to think about widening maybe i need to be offering something else because maybe i'm missing out on you know other people who would want to be coming meaning the number is not necessarily an indication just of how quality it is or how successful it is but also as to whether you're positioning yourself right in terms of who you can or should be reaching absolutely i mean it's it's important to think about those things and in my role as senior rabbi of a large congregation, if I, if I don't think about those things carefully and thoughtfully, I'm not doing my job right. right. But, but if that's all I think about, and, and if I obsess about that, and if I, um, and what, what I know we'll get to later in the conversation, you know, is a, a certain kind of uh, detachment that I think is important to have around those metrics. Mm. Um, if I don't have those things in balance, I don't think I'll be, uh, I think I'll be miserable, um, which will burn me out and, and make it so that I can't do the job at all. And when I think about, you know, these, these, um, you know, world-class athletes that are profiled in the podcast, you know, thinking about someone like Michaela Maroney, I mean, if she is not incredibly driven to the point that she's willing to, you know, push herself 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day for years mm -hmm. to get to that place, um, you know, and, and just hyper-focused, she'll never make it to the Olympics in the first place. My God, if I made it to the Olympics, right. you know, I'd, I'd be so happy. But the truth is, if I was the kind of athlete who could make it to the Olympics, I'd probably be more like her. And then right. I wouldn't be happy right. if I didn't but, get the gold. Right. But so, so let me just ask one question about that, because I actually thought there was that moment when Michelle Kwan 
describes tearing up during the warmups when she's um, going across uh, skating across the ice and across uh, over the uh, Olympic the Olympic uh, rings, yeah, the Olympic rings, and that she tears up, and her coach basically says, you know, get focused, you know, that's not what you're here for, and I and I thought that was really interesting because like she obviously had it in her that 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 ability to truly be savoring the moment. Uh, and, and the coach's voice was truly external to her um, and said, you know, hey, put that quiet, that voice right now, you need to, you need to get into high gear. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote it down as I was preparing for this. The, the coach said, you have a job to do, snap That's out right. of it. Right, exactly. And I, I, I love that. I mean, it's, it's, it's so powerful and also so sad where it's like, wait a second, right. you know, she's having this spiritual yes. moment. She's yeah. being moved. It's like, yeah. This is the, and the image of her on the ice. And she talked about the sound of her skates right. on the right. ice. I mean, I was moved hearing it. Right. And then yeah. to have the coach just be yes. like, we are here for one reason and one reason only to win. Yes. I felt like as a listener, I was snapped out of it. So let me just ask you one final question before we go to the Jewish framing, which is about what you said about your father as a surgeon. So, you know, not being a surgeon, I could say, I could think immediately of three different metrics, right? One metric for him might be, how 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 well did I do the surgery at some kind of technical level or how many surgeries I've done successfully? The second metric might be how my patients, how I interact with them and their appreciation of me and so forth. And then a third is, is income. I wonder whether part of the challenge or part of what um, a good way of dealing with this is, is to decide where we're going to cast our glance. It is going to be a metric, um, how much money did I make to make ends meet? And it is going to be a metric you know, did I do it well at a technical level? And it is going to be a metric, you know, how did my patients interact with me? But it, but it could be that the, that the way to achieve a, a good balance is to be is to be thinking conceptually about wh what am I casting my glance at and which are the different metrics and, and how much attention am I giving to each of them? Yeah, that's really nice because that ties back to that, that previous <clears throat> conversation about, well, you know, I had the Torah study class and only 10 people came, right? right? So depends on the various metrics. So one metric is yeah, how many people were, was I able to attract to this by making sure that we did a great job with our communications team. And I came up with a title that was just interesting and evocative enough that someone said, ooh, I want to come to that and put it at just the right time and all those other factors. Um, but then, of course, there's the experience itself. Like, did people leave moved? Were, right. were they changed in some way? Did right. their thinking right. about a particular topic evolve in some way? One of the things that we're dealing with in the synagogue world today, and it's happening in the in the, uh, in the the church world as well, is there has been over the last couple of decades, a decline in affiliation and membership across denominations, mm -hmm. across, uh, you know, religious traditions. And knowing that you're in a, it, I'll use ugly corporate language, but knowing that you're in an industry that's not in a growth cycle, mm -hmm. right? There's something about that that's inherently challenging, inherently mm -hmm. depressing, where it's like, mm -hmm. God, we could do our job so well. Right. And the sociological forces are lined up against us. There's right. going to be fewer people next year than this year. Mm. And, and it won't necessarily be, I don't want to let ourselves off the hook, but it won't necessarily be because we stink at our mm. job. It might just be that that's the trend line that we're moving in. You know, that's another reason why I think you know it's so important to have an expansive metric, because otherwise we're putting ourselves in a position where we're going to be inherently dissatisfied. Mm -hmm.
Let me ask you, when you listen to the podcast, um, after your initial reactions, when you started to kind of integrate and process and think through it, um, Jewishly, how did you do that? You know, I was thinking about happiness and different Jewish teachings around happiness. And, and one of the first places I went was uh, in the Psalms, uh, one of my favorite lines in the Psalms, Evdu et Adonai basimcha, bo lefana birnana. Um, serve God with joy. And I love that it's, it doesn't say, you know, be happy. It mm -hmm. says, find joy in the service. Mm -hmm. So I really like that. Um, and, uh, and I felt like there was a, a moment when, um, I think it was Michelle Kwan talked about that in the, in the podcast where she talked about it, you know, the journey itself, everything yes. that led her to the yes. Olympics. She had to find ways to find joy and happiness in that. Right. Because if the only happiness you're going to experience is I got to win the gold medal, like, right. okay, there's only, only one person's going to win the gold medal that yeah, year. You know? That's right. That's, that's where Lori Santos talks about enjoying. I think she says, enjoying the grind. Right. That's it. In the same way that sometimes people talk about Aliyah, you know, you, you might come to Israel out of ideology, but you stay because of the cucumbers and tomatoes. If you don't, if you don't enjoy the daily grind, then it's it's going to be a journey not worth taking. Absolutely, and it's true with with everything. You know, your job and 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 I I don't want to refer to a marriage as a grind, but you know, <laughs> the work the work of the marriage, right? It's My not marriage, just yeah. Those <laughs> Not just those high moments where, oh, you know, right. the, under the chuppah and the birth of our child, but it's like the day-to-day right. -day yeah. moments of making a life together. The final text that um, I think is might be most interesting to your listeners who have um, a lot of familiarity with some of these other kinds of texts, you know, the Psalms and, and Mishnah Avot are amongst the more well-known texts in, in the Jewish canon. Um, but that that sense of, can you find... Um, satisfaction and happiness, the, the Hebrew word that's used there is um, a sh it, it, they're kind of playing with, with osher a little bit, I think, just kind of a word play, because then it talks about ashrecha, you know, mm -hmm. um, as one of the proof texts. So can you find a sense of happiness in, um, in what you have, whatever that is? And so then that got me to this uh, text the, from the Yismach Moshe, Rabbi Moshe Tatelbaum, so I'm in this study program now through the Institute of Jewish Spirituality. And um, one of my teachers, Rabbi Jonathan Slater, um, who's just a, an incredible um, expert on Hasidut and, mm -hmm. and an all around great teacher as well. But he introduced me to this text as part of uh, my study program. And I, uh, I studied it with my Chavruta, my study partner in, in IJS, early, fairly early in the pandemic, a few months in. And these texts had been planned before uh, before COVID nineteen was planned. There was these a texts world were, before were, were already planned, and it was part of our curriculum. But it ended up being so perfect for that moment. And he introduced me to this um, Hasidic concept or Kabbalistic concept of histapkut, which comes from the the same Hebrew word, a Hebrew root as must speak. You know, when someone says, you know, must speak, it's enough. Mm -hmm. So histapkut is defined as equanimity. Um, that's that sense that you you are satisfied with what you have. What you have hmm. is enough. And what we talked about with my chavruta and I is, you know, how do you find that sense of histapkut in whatever moment you're in? Um, hmm. You know, and and so this was a time when it was like 
I was having a hard time finding flour in the grocery store. Hmm. And I know a lot of the listeners can, can relate. Hmm. And, uh, and I remember uh, online, I found a place that would deliver a 25 pound bag of flour and I ordered it. And you know, like a week later it came. And if you'd have told me a year earlier that I, I would be elated and have this sense of joy and satisfaction when the, when the flour showed up, cause like, well, who cares? Just go to, go to Ralph's you know, or Vons and you'll find the, what's the big deal? Or, you know, to get a little more scatological, I mean, getting toilet paper when you thought like, I, we might run out of toilet paper. So the idea that like that could be, that could give you a sense of histapkut, that could give you a mm. sense of maspikness, mm. you know, was so beautiful. And, mm. and, and it could, you know, nothing could be farther from the silver medalist and I'm not, I'm not belittling her in any way because right. I can't imagine right. what it would be like to be an elite athlete. Right. But, but, you know, in some ways it's the polar opposite of the silver medalist being brokenhearted because she didn't get gold. Wow. There's something about what you were talking about in terms of the flower and, um, and the midata istapkut, the ability, what did you call it? You called it equanimity? Yeah. You know, the ability to just stay there with what I have and, and not be focused on what I don't have, which is tremendous. And, and this gets back to what you said about the fact that they're Olympic medalists. They wouldn't have gotten there if they didn't have an incredible drive and hunger, right? So I guess my question for you would be, how is it? How could it be? How could I foster that sense of histapkut, of kind of satisfaction with, with what there is and with what I have without losing a sense of drive, a sense of willingness to go the extra mile, desire to make the world or my life a little bit better. How, how, how do you balance those two? I think it's the essential question, you know, regarding this particular topic of, of happiness and, and how do we find that sense of satisfaction? And so how do you have that and have this tremendous drive at the same time, whether you're an elite athlete or, you know, you want to build the, the greatest podcast ever, you want to, you know, help your synagogue grow and be successful in all these ways. Like if I don't get up with a sense of drive in the morning, I'm not going to do a very good job for my community. I, I should be driven and I should be pushing myself and I should, I should be hungry. But if I'm too hungry, the, the hunger will eat me alive in some mm. ways. And now I'll share a different text from uh, Micha Goodman that I learned last summer he was teaching about Spinoza and he talked about determinism, uh, that sense that, you know, uh, no, try as you might, no matter what you do, it's all predetermined mm -hmm. based on all sorts of factors, you know, in terms of being an Olympic athlete, that was kind of predetermined for me. And I probably could have, maybe I'm letting myself off the hook, right? But maybe I could have spent 10 hours a day, seven days a week for five years would I really have been able to compete at Olympic level? No, there are certain genetic factors that right. would, that would uh, limit that for me. The insight that I thought was so great from Micha was that he said, the opposite of determinism is tikkun olam. The opposite of determinism is tikkun olam because you believe you can change things, you can fix right. them, you can repair them. It's not right. all determined. If I work hard and you be you become my partner and we get another thousand people, we'll move the needle and we'll change the world. So the way I've tried to think about it during this pandemic and and I especially, but probably after is, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I pull out my tikkun olam, um, you know, my little tikkun olam badge right. and I put that on or my tikkun olam hat and I go, okay, you know, I'm on the clock and, and from now until quitting time, I'm going to do everything I can to make things better. 
Right. But then when it's time to, you know, punch out, I'm going to put on my determinism badge and I'm going to say, I didn't make a difference at all. It didn't matter. And now I'm going to have my dinner and, you know, read a book or watch some dumb TV show. And I'm going to, I'm going to sleep better because I'm not going to be up in the middle of the night worrying about it. I'm not going to worry about it till tomorrow morning. And honest to God, that helped so much this last year. Mm. I've slept better. I've been less anxious and worried mm. in the midst of this global pandemic. I worried less. And a lot of it was just that one insight. So I think to me, that really is about reference point, you know, um, in this sense, you know, so what, what is that reference point? So I am going to, I'm going to push and strive and try to succeed and get more people in my classes and raise more funds for the temple and recruit the best staff ever, you know, and do a great job in, in, in all of the functions that I do. I'm going to work really hard at that. And, and then in the evening, I'm going to let it all go and remind myself in this vast cosmos, it doesn't matter a whit. I want to get back to the issue of reference point in just a minute, but I want to I want to go with that image that you have of taking off your tikkun olam hat and putting on your um, determinism hat, and just ask, okay, so so let's let's fine tune that. What are either the outward flags? that say, okay, Yosh, time to take off your tikkun olam hat and put on your, uh, I'm going to call it the histapkut hat if it's okay right now. What, what allows you to know out from outside that it's time to switch hats or alternatively, what inside? Like, are there, are there signs of fatigue? Are there signs of becoming nasty? Are there signs of, you know, being worn down? As you said it, it was so helpful actually hearing you ask the question in that way, especially the last part about, you know, mm -hmm. fatigue or I'm starting to get short with my staff mm -hmm. or my family, you know, mm -hmm. or myself. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the time to just say, whoa, whoa, take a breath. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter in the in the grand scheme of things, mm -hmm. and um, even in the this this now mm. moment, it doesn't really matter either. Mm. Um, so I like that a lot. That was really helpful. the The planned way of doing it is for me that has been helpful, mm -hmm. and I wish I could do it with even more fidelity. Is meditation. Mm. So you know, spending time in the morning, maybe even with a bit of a mantra, where you say, "Okay, you know," mm -hmm. uh, and I I've, I've been doing this, you know, where I say, okay, it's time to go and try to fix things hmm. and make things better. And hmm. I'm, you know, I'm going to be mitzakein olam right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. It's hmm. going to be uh, tiring. It's going to be uplifting. It's going to be frustrating, but that's what I'm doing. Hmm. I'm, I'm a mitzakein olam right now. That's what I'm going to try to do. And, and so that's the kavanah. And then quite literally in the evening before trying to drift off to sleep, just breathe, I, I breathe it out and I let it go. Mm. And I'm like, all the things that I did today, whew, let mm. them go, mm. you know, and the frustrations, ah, they'll be there tomorrow. And, mm. you know, and the victories too, because I think that's part of his top coup is you also have to like those great moments that right. you're at night, you're like, oh man, right. that was great. Right. You know, let that go too, because it didn't matter either. Mm. Okay, don't kid yourself mm. in the grand scheme of things. Even those little victories um, are insignificant. Let me kind of tie those two together. Um, those two moments together and, and and link it back to the text and ask you what you think. Because the text that you brought, the, the Ismach Moshe, he says something interesting. He says, um, Because the tzaddik, the righteous person, has this ability, 
I mean, this is a really amazing idea that because a righteous person, the righteous person has this ability to be satisfied or, or to achieve equanimity with whatever he or she has. Because of that, through that, the entire world is nourished, right? So I was thinking to myself, there's two very different ways to understand this um, idea. Uh, one of them is that the, the world is nourished because in that moment, what the tzaddik, what the righteous person is bringing into the world is that aspect of equanimity, the fact that I can now, I'm bringing a, a sense of calm and acceptance into the world at that time. I'm letting go of the relentless pursuit of achievement. Uh, I'm showing what it is to skate across the ice and cry right now and, 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 and you know, say hush, hush uh, to, to, the, to the coach who's telling me, you know, that's not what we came for. And, uh, and I'm bringing that into the world. That's one way of understanding it. The other way of understanding it is that there's something, because I'm, I'm the tzaddik or the righteous person um, is willing to settle for less. He's not stockpiling. Uh, he's not trying to get so much for himself that now he's in competition with other people and other people are in competition with him. So, so I was thinking, you know, in terms of what you said about, about kind of achieving that balance of those two things, of those two hats, what do you think, um, what do you think is the gift here? Yeah, it's a, it's a great part of that text, you know, and it, and it, it's interesting because the accomplishment is being able to achieve equanimity, that whatever comes your way, mm -hmm. uh, whatever challenges, whatever uh, triumphs, whatever it is, there's an evenness to that. Mm -hmm. And for the Yismach Moshe, there's, there's something really important about that, valuable about that, transcendent about that, holy about that, whatever language you want to use, so much so that, that if you were to achieve that, Leon, in your life, it would positively affect the world. Now, this is, you know, clearly uh, an example of rabbinic hyperbole on the one hand, you know, you'd say, what well, does he really think that the whole world is affected in that way? And maybe on the other hand, yeah, he literally sees it that way, that that to achieve for the tzaddik, and that, that is, you know, kind of the, the notion of the tzaddik is that the tzaddik can achieve a spiritual, uh, a level of spiritual elevation that lifts us all up. If I invite you to take a step back, um, and, and look around you uh, in your life and the life of the people that you work alongside, the people, the congregation that you lead, um, and you think, what is it? What are the takeaways that, you know, as you, as you think about the podcast, um, Michelle Kwan, as you think about the Smach Moshe, what do you think that um, we should be taking away from this? One of the things about the podcast that was so um, poignant and painful is this image of this elite athlete who's got, you know, everything going for her. And, you know, just an, an extraordinary, when I, when I went online and then I, you know, I got to see, um, I got to see some of her, is it a routine or, um, you know, the events that she was in. And it was just, it's unbelievable that a person can, can do that with their body and, and make all that happen. It's extraordinary, you know, what a gift. And then to, to see her in pain and just have this sense of failure because she got the silver, that was, that was painful to, to watch and to see. And, you know, we, we certainly have examples of that. And, and most painfully, you know, in, in, in my congregational life, I mean, I've had people take their own lives and, and the note that they left or, or something that they said to a loved one was that they felt like such a failure because of X or Y or Z. But then you, you look at their life, you look at their family, you look at all of these outward kind of 
signs of success. And you wonder how could that person have felt like such a failure? And, and there, there's, a, there's a deep pain in that. So my worry isn't that we'll all develop such a deep sense of histapkut that we'll stop striving. I don't think that's very likely. I think, I think we're born to strive. But my worry is that the striving, you know, eats us alive and, and leads to unhappiness. Rabbi Yoshi Zweibach. Thank you very, very much for being here, for sharing your, your wisdom, your Torah, and for your thoughts. Padrash is a project of Kolot, a fantastic organization in Israel where I'm privileged to direct the Beit Midrash. Before we continue on to Sherry Geller, guest of our Hypertext segment, we'll break briefly in order to meet Anat Nehemia Levi, CEO of the Edmund Rothschild Partnerships and a Kolot alumna. We chatted so that I can learn about her and how learning at Kolot has impacted her. My name is Anat Nehemia Levi. I'm uh, the CEO of Brightchild Partnerships. It's a leading NGO in Israel that promotes young and diverse leadership programs all over the Israeli periphery. And uh, basically, I dedicate my life to reducing cap in Israel economically and socially. I was born in the Israeli periphery. We called it Moshav Olim, Moshav settlement that basically were immigrants from uh, mainly the Mizrahi country. I was uh, born in the Jewish uh, Cochinic community. It's a small community from India. In the age of uh, 12, I went to boarding school and that I got my opportunity, but I realized that my other friends didn't. And uh, so I think from the age 16 or 17, I, I realized that I will dedicate my life to give opportunity to young people all over Israel to fulfill their dreams. And in the last, uh, I think, 25 years, I'm working with Israeli philanthropy, American philanthropy, to establish movement, NGOs, and the national level project that reducing gaps mainly with youth and young people in the Israeli periphery. Fantastic, thank you. Can you share with us uh, a moment during your time learning at Kolot that stayed with you, that impacted you, or maybe even influences how you do or what you do? It's a tough question because I love, I have plenty of enlightened uh, moments. I was amazed to realize that all the things that were read and learned was so relevant to our life and mainly to my management table. And uh, I think this is the moment that I realized that I need to continue with Colot parallel to my career. And uh, we are a group that we continue to meet and, and learn and discuss. This is the seven years. I think Colot is part of my you know daily life until today and for on. Like every episode of Padrash, learning at Colot pulses between the text as discussed in the Beit Midrash and the broken reality that surrounds us beckoning us to hear voices of wisdom that can point the way to a better world. To learn more about Kolot, visit www.kolot.net. And now, back to our episode. 
I want to welcome to Padrash Sherry Geller, who is the co-director of college counseling at Gann Academy, a pluralistic Jewish high school in Massachusetts. Over her career, Sherry has worked in college admissions at two universities and college counseling at two high schools, and she's been a leader in regional and national professional associations. In non-pandemic time, Sherry enjoys traveling, spending summers on Cape Cod, and cheering around her beloved Boston sports teams, which I will have more to say about as an Astros fan soon. Each of their victories makes her happy, which is just the perfect thing to transition to the, uh, the topic we want to talk about, because the question is whether we can... Uh, um, be joyous and defeat as well, I guess. At least that's one of the questions. So, Sherry, thank you very, very much for being here on Padrash. Thank you for inviting me. So let me start by asking, when you're shepherding a student through this whole process, how do you balance your own sense of what would make that person happy with what I'm sure you know are either that student's expectations or demands or those of the school or their family or parents that they get into the quote unquote best school possible, which I assume means almost always the most prestigious. But, but I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you uh, riff on that question. When I start working with a student, we talk about what best means and what's the best school for them. And so initially I don't even let kids mention the name of schools. We start with questions of what kinds of environments they feel like they'll be most comfortable in or happy if we wanna use that word and most successful. And so for example, if the most competitive college a student can get into is in the middle of a major city and the student doesn't like being in cities then that's never gonna be the best school for them because waking up every morning in the middle of a city or going to bed late at night with the city lights and traffic and the city noises mm -hmm. is just never going to be a place that's going to bring them happiness over time. So mm -hmm. we always start by talking about things like what kind of communities do they want and how far from home and what kind of support might they need. So for some families, prestige or some ranking is actually one of those criteria that they think will bring out happiness. But I actually never allow a conversation to start there. Um, so after students have been admitted to a group of colleges and they're coming to make a decision about where to go, we always go back to those initial criteria and think about mm. beyond the acceptance rate or belong beyond the name of the school, what is the kind of environment that will best meet what they envision for a happy college experience? Is there any level at which success for you or one criteria of success is helping your advisees change their preconceptions of what will make them happy. And I would assume that sometimes, you know, you're not seeing things eye to eye with them in terms of what you think from your best reading of that person would make them happy. Um, and that they're getting, uh, you know, they're kind of trapped by some conception or preconception of what will make them happy based on prestige. Is that a criteria of success for you where you say, okay, part of my job is to help usher them into a broader sense of what a successful process is for them? Well, my job is to coach, advise, support, help them think, help them figure things out. So it's not my job to be the gatekeeper. So if a student wants to apply to a highly selective school that I don't think they have a good chance of getting into, mm -hmm. or if a student really wants to apply for, for a school, um, to a school 
that's a four hour plane ride. And I think, how's mm -hmm. that ever gonna work with mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. family? As long as the student and family are making the decision that, this, that everybody's supporting that student to apply, okay, we're gonna have these few, what we call reach schools or sometimes um, uh, super reach schools. And then we're also gonna make sure the list is rounded out so that the student has somewhere to go in the end. And that's where we can keep going back to those qualities. Okay, you wanna be um, at a school with these features. What are some other schools that might have that? And then it's in the college's hands. If the college admits the student and the student wants to go to that school, great. If the college then doesn't admit the student because they don't see it as the right fit for the student, then um, that's on them. <laughs> To what extent do you find, and, and I don't know, I don't know how long you continue to be in touch with your advisees once they've gotten their answers from college and once they've gone off to college, but however long that is, to what extent do you find that there is a correlation between their having gotten into or accepted by and then attending the college which they which they wanted to go to? Uh, and a sense of happiness or satisfaction on their part. Once a student kind of chooses their school, buys the sweatshirt, signs up for orientation, or chooses where they're going to live, that they start mm -hmm. to bond with the institution. So I think when each student gets accepted, even if it's not what they're thinking of as their top choice, it feels really good to know, especially for that first school, that, ooh, somebody wants me, I've been accepted, my application worked, like I did something right, mm -hmm. and I'm going to go to college, wherever that will be. Hmm. Sometimes that's a bit of a fleeting thought if it's not one of the students' top choices, even though they've only applied to seven or eight. And sometimes they even become a little annoyed with themselves, feeling like, oh, maybe I could do better, or maybe hmm. um, uh, my friend made better decisions about where to apply. That's very common with teenagers is to have that happiness um, kind of tempered by their other emotions once they've, you know, give a little space since when they actually get the decision. In fact, in my school, we have a school tradition that students not wear their college t-shirts or sweatshirts to the places they've been admitted until the whole class is done and decided. You don't have a student coming in one day all excited that they got into a school and the person they're sitting next to in math class didn't get into that same school right, the night before. Right. Or the person sitting across from them in English class kind of wanted to apply, but their family thought that's too far away. We're not going to allow you to go to a school that's so far from home or whatever the different parameters are. So as a way of um, having sort of community support for the kids for each other and not bragging, gloating, whatever, which can really, um, for the teenager on the other side of that, really be painful. Um, that's something that I inherited when I got to my school, and it's been the, kind of the tradition for the seniors since the school's it's founding. A, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful tradition in a way, and it kind of tests them to the way in which, uh, you know, a community can, can commit itself to certain values, which then I think clearly, clearly uh, nurture a sense of solidarity and well-being for everyone who's in it. So let me ask you one other question. If something good happens 
then so often, I mean, studies have found that it, that, that the, the effect that we thought that it was going to give us doesn't last as long as we thought it would. Uh, and, and for that matter, the converse is the case as well, which is when something bad happens, uh, um, then, then the, the negative effect that we anticipated uh, also doesn't last as long. We're, we're kind of, uh, we get to a place of homeostasis uh, quicker and, and for a more, and for, for a longer more extended period of time than we anticipated. So I want to I want to graph that question onto the um, onto the situation of college admissions and ask, from your experience, um, how long does it take for those who e- either who got into the place that they really really wanted to, and maybe especially if it wasn't one of the, it was one of those uh, long shots. And how long is that? Does it take for that um, feeling of euphoria to dissipate? Uh, or conversely, those who didn't get into the place they wanted to, how long um, does it take for them to kind of bounce back and get to a place of satisfaction and 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 happiness that notwithstanding? I think when students get into their first choice school, however that's defined, whether by prestige mm-hmm. or not, the student has identified it as this is the place I most want to go. Mm-hmm. I do think there's a sense of happiness about that accomplishment that stays with them for at least the rest of high school until they get there. Mm. For the kids that it's not a first choice, it takes a lot longer to get there. But I do think once they get to that point of actually selecting the school and realizing that's where I'm going, and then whether we let them wear their t-shirt or not (laughs) at school Mm. for the reasons I said before, but putting on the sweatshirt, kind of announcing to the world, maybe then it's going on social media, maybe not. Um, but telling all their friends and family and getting excited about that school, I think mm-hmm. then the happiness around that school also carries them a pretty long time, even as they carry those other emotions. I think they get over the, I didn't get in much more quickly than the feeling of I did get in and here's the positive outcome. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think there are some people that are 40 and still wonder what they could have done differently and why they didn't get into a different college or why they couldn't have ended up on a different path. And other people who realize as as they get older and older might even be their freshman year in college, but once they're out of high school, how when they end up at a place that's right for them, how much more important that aspect of happiness is by the friends they're making, the relationships they're building, the careers they're starting to develop and build and learn for. And it's, um, I think that aspect of happiness can carry for a long time. Yeah, I was, I was just going to share that I, I actually have a good friend who shared with me regret that she had passed the age of 40. Uh, so, so she'd obviously carried it for, for a good long while that she went to Yale, um, uh, I guess for the wrong reasons, and that she thinks that she she would have been happier somewhere else. So it, it cuts in it cuts in all different directions. Yeah, I think um, that's sort of the kind of example I was giving in starting talking with students about criteria. Chances are, if she could think back to her high school self and what she thought would make her most happy, mm. if the school was not named Yale, she would not have ended up there. So we do have this thing, especially in American society, but there are when you mentioned about Israeli culture being different around college admission, but certainly in this country and in other places across the world, we have this um, idolization of certain schools and names. And it seems like you've won this prize if you can get it into those schools. 
And the reality is it's really not the best prize or gift for every student that's there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Sherry Geller, thank you very, very much for being here. Thank you for doing the work that you do, shepherding uh, the students and their families through that very, very complicated minefield and process of, uh, of finding that environment that'll make them happy and then trying to get there. Uh, thank you very much for being here and for sharing. Thanks again for hosting me. What in the hell are you looking at? I've come to think that at a deep level, that's what it's all about. Where do I decide to direct my glance? At the person who got the gold? Or at those who aren't even on the podium? But actually, there are more options. I can, like Michelle Kwan, decide to look at the Olympic rings on the ice. Or maybe I could even close my eyes and listen to the sound of the skates on the ice. Feel the exhaustion of the grind that leaves my body deplete but exhilarated, and savor the sweetness of the moment. As Sherry Geller advises her students at Gann Academy, we can decide to glance not at the name of the school, but at its qualities. Where is it? How big is it? Will its milieu allow me to grow and thrive? And, when the dust settles, and I'm going where I'm going, I find happiness in pulling that sweatshirt on in wearing those colors. Rabbi Yoshi Zweibach suggested a daily move wherein we switch hats. We take off the tikkun olam hat under which we spend so much of the day pounding the pavement hard, looking at metrics, trying our best to be our best, to improve our relationships, to achieve, to succeed, to leave the world a better place. And in its stead, we pull on the hat of histapkut, of equanimity and satiation, of enoughness. We have enough. We've done enough. We've accomplished enough. We say it over and over at the Passover Seder, Dayenu, enough. The abundant blessings in our lives are so beyond what we need. The problem is that it's so hard to remember that, which might be why we say it so many times. And it's what the great Americana singer-songwriter James McMurtry meant when he sings, I don't want another drink. I only want that last one again. The Ismach Moshe teaches us that curbing this incessant internal hunger is not only good for us, for our sense of wellness and self. It also serves as a source of sustenance and even bounty to all those around us. Padrash is a project of Kolot. I'm Leon Wiener Dow, creator and host. My sincere thanks go to this episode's guests, Rabbi Yoshi Zweibach and Sherry Geller, to our producer, Noam Zuckerman, to David Goodman and Aaron Harris for their masterful sound editing, to my chevruta, Rabbi Joel Levy, for the learning, the wisdom, and the friendly British critique of American society, and to Michael Gol Samir for the original music please visit our website at www.podrash.org where you'll find the links to the original episode of The Happiness Lab and to Joel's and my extended chavruta, along with the texts that we referenced. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Tell your friends, tweet, like our page on Facebook, and please give us a five-star rating. It really helps. Drop me a line. Tell me what you think. I'd love to hear from you. We're not taking a break, but we figured you might be. So we'll be back in three weeks' time with a new episode. Deep Pockets, Shallow Hearts, thanks for joining us.